Since 1774, Newark Academy has contributed to the world, engaged individuals instilled with a passion for learning, a standard of excellence, and a generosity of spirit. Scattered throughout the world today, NA alumni continue to exhibit these traits and more and have such incredible stories to share. You'll hear these stories on this podcast, NA Voices. Here's your host, Head of School, Don Austin. Brad Johnson is a 40-year veteran of the hospitality industry and a second-generation restaurateur who built a reputation owning and operating acclaimed restaurants, bars, and clubs in Los Angeles, New York, and Las Vegas. During his 40-year career, Brad established a reputation for cultivating a diverse, multi-ethnic clientele and staff. It's my great pleasure to welcome Brad Johnson, class of 1975, to NA Voices. <laughs> that sounds like a very long time ago, but thank you, Don. It's, it's yeah. really, really great to be here with you. Oh, well, we're so so pleased to have the chance to to talk and get get to know a little bit about you. Let's let's start with the um, with the early years. Uh, mm-hmm. How did you end up at Newark Academy? <clears throat> well, that's a that's a fun story, you know. Um, so one of your 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 legend alumni, Eric Williams, and I. Uh, we're very, very good friends. We had met uh, a couple of years prior on Martha's Vineyard and, and struck up an immediate friendship. And my senior year, going into my senior year, I was um, I was at uh, Kimball Union Academy in Meriden, New Hampshire, which is a few, about 20 miles uh, away from Dartmouth in the middle of nowhere, literally nowhere. And uh, I was a little concerned that although I was um, getting some notoriety in you know, that part of New England, um, I wasn't hearing from the, the the kind of schools that I had hoped to attend, possibly on a basketball scholarship. So in talking with my mom and dad, they thought that it might be wise if I considered coming back to school in the Northeast. Um, and so Eric and I began to talk and the subject of Newark Academy came up and we had become such good friends. And of course, as you know, he's an outstanding uh, basketball player. Uh, I thought the opportunity to play with Eric would be phenomenal. And then, of course, Newark Academy being such a great school, it just seemed like uh, the right situation for me. And, and so that's that's how that happened. I ended up attending Newark Academy my, my senior year. That's great. Well, I did see uh, in some of the records that you were one of the top scorers in the Essex County that season and the tournament MVP at the Loyola Invitational. <laughs> Where we came away with a first place trophy, and we beat Collegiate, where, where you spent some time. Oh, you did! Oh, well, I did not know that little detail. Yeah. Great, that's awesome. Well, Eric is a is a great friend to the school, and I I always look forward to seeing him, and uh, uh, I'm sure he I hope he'll get a chance to listen to this as well. Um, do you have any specific memories? So you were here just basically for your senior year. Yeah, for a year. Yep. And I actually lived with the Williams family uh, on Overhill Drive in South Orange. And Eric's dad, uh, who was a doctor, a very well-known doctor um, in Essex County, um, was just phenomenal for to Eric and I. I mean, after games, he would take us out for beer and pizza. And I would so look forward to those times. And he was a big jazz enthusiast, as, as my dad was. And so it was just... Eric had a, they had a big, beautiful house on Overhill Drive, and it was, I believe, 
three levels and myself, Eric and his cousin, Gary, we lived on the third floor. And so we had down, we had the run of an entire third floor where the parents rarely came and big stereo speakers and a lot of fun up there. Some studying too, but uh, yeah, a lot yeah. of fun, a lot of good memories. That's great. Yep. Um, do you have any other sort of memories of your experience at Newark Academy, any teachers or other classmates that, um, that impacted you or that you still remember fondly? Well, you know, I, I certainly, um, I do. Um, I have to say coach Hendrickson though, the, the basketball coach, um, for me was one of the people that I just really, um, admired. He was such a, just a, an instructive coach, you know, coaches are so important, um, in the role and development of athletes as students and as young men and young ladies. And, you know, Coach Hendrickson was just someone that uh, you wanted to you wanted to excel for. Um, he had a very patient demeanor, um, but uh, he obviously knew how to be competitive in team sports. In fact, uh, that year we lost in the state finals to uh, to Lawrenceville, uh, but we had gone that far. And, uh, you know, we had a we had a pretty decent team. And Eric, of course, um, was a, I think he still may be, um, if not the but one of the top uh, scorers in Essex County of all time. Um, so we had a pretty decent team, but it was really the spirit around the team that Coach Hendrickson instilled um, in us. You know, and as far as the um, the academic atmosphere at Newark Academy, um, you know, it was the small classrooms, the the. Um, the quality of the professors. Eric's, Eric's sister actually taught theater um, at Newark Academy when I was there, and she convinced me to do a play. I had never been on stage before, and she convinced me to uh, take a role in a, in a production she was doing, The Butterflies Are Free, and um, where I'm the, I'm the guy who tries to take the, uh, the blind guy, the main uh, protagonist, is his, uh, he's blind, and I, and I take his girlfriend for a short period of time. So, you know... Um, that, that Ricky uh, was was Eric's sister, and uh, that was a, a very memorable experience for me too. But you know, it was just the overall experience down at at Newark Academy was just phenomenal for me. I loved the school, I loved the people there, the atmosphere. Um, it was it was just um, outstanding all the way around. Well, that's very nice to hear. And by the way, uh, you probably have heard that uh, Coach Hendrickson passed away this last year, but there has been a lot of alumni activity around uh, you know, remembering him. And uh, there is a, a video that's been put together with a lot of the, the kids that played football for him, notably in the late mm -hmm. 60s. And, and many of the sentiments that you've just described are, are uh, echoed in their comments about how impactful he was, what a great guy. And, and again, how that's such a, an important element of, you know, the independent school experience. The fact that you can, you know, you have the classroom experience, but you also have coaches and, and the other activities that, that really shape you and, and often leave lasting impressions. Um, following Newark Academy, you went to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And it sounds like you decided, or I read in one of your reminiscences that you decided that you were going to be a hotel restaurant management person, <laughs> largely because that was the family business, right? Or your dad had run a successful restaurant on the Upper West Side mm -hmm. of Manhattan. Um, I'm curious, did you consider other things early on when you were at college? Or was that kind of 
the decision you were going to go into into restaurants uh you know i'm going to sound like a like a typical jock here don and and tell you that you know my main aspiration was to play professional basketball and i just absolutely loved the game since the time i was young and and began playing um i had such a love of sports in general football baseball initially and then basketball and um, yeah, the decision to uh, to to study hotel restaurant management at UMass was really kind of one of convenience in that my dad had purchased the restaurant, as you mentioned, um, the cellar on the Upper West Side of Manhattan in '73, and I'd worked there, uh, you know, in high school as a as a initially as a dishwasher and and got a taste for the business there. And I thought about you know taking business as a general study uh, at UMass, and then I got to know a bit about their hospitality program my senior year at U- at uh, Newark Academy when um, UMass started to show some interest. They were actually interested in both Eric and I, and, and both of us ended up attending school there. But as I found out more about their hospitality program and, and realized that uh, they were second only to Cornell, um, I thought it would really be a great opportunity to specialize just in case the basketball thing did not work out and the Knicks didn't draft me, which they did not. <laughs> That's great. Can you talk a little bit more about your father, Howard Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, your experience you know, with him or working under him and in those early years in the cellar, and mm-hmm. which, which turned out to be a real landmark for the African-American community. And it sounds like, you know, you've been reflecting a lot on that in the last uh, year. Uh, by the way, I've very much enjoyed your, your you know, the, the, the piece that you wrote and uh, very carefully researched and well-written and thoughtful and interesting. So um, uh-huh. that's, that's a lot of what's <laughs> informing my questions. But, well, thank you, Don. That, yeah. That's very nice. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, the Oxford American piece that you just referenced, actually, you know, it's funny how things come full circle. Um, but, uh, you know, it, I, it was mentioned to me as a possibility by uh, one of the um, the original uh, women, African-Americans and, and women in the uh, publishing industry, a, a woman named Marie Brown, who I met back in the day, um, you know, in the early 70s when my dad had the cellar. She was just starting out at Doubleday at the time and was a very good friend of my father. So fast forward to um, about seven or eight months ago, she knew of this Oxford American opportunity and and suggested that I submit something um, to them. And because she, she knew of my interest in writing and I did. And that led to the piece that that uh, that you just mentioned. Yeah, you know, the cellar, Don, was an interesting, um, an interest, a really interesting experience in that, you know, for one, certainly as a, as the son of the owner, um, I got a unique opportunity to see business ownership from that perspective. Um, although my job in my initial jobs, I worked as a dishwasher, a busboy, a, a bartender. I worked my way through. And then, of course, at the same time, uh, once I started attending school at UMass, you know, I was matching my academic education with my real life education, which was, you know, a really not. In fact, UMass um, encouraged folks, of course, to, to do that. Um, but it was also a really interesting time, Don, for, for black folks culturally in New York. The Upper West Side of Manhattan was where a lot of uh, African-Americans had migrated to, some whom had, had lived in Harlem. 
that, of course, moved there during the Great Migration. And then Harlem had some issues in the 70s with heroin and then later in the 80s with crack. And it became just less hospitable to business. So a lot of African-Americans that um, were looking for uh, just a, a, a different lifestyle, I guess, migrated to the Upper West, West Side of Manhattan. So at one time in the 70s, there were four or five African-American-owned bars, restaurants. Um, they weren't necessarily clubs. They were, they were bars and restaurants, but they had live entertainment and they featured live entertainment. So you could see anybody from Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers to Keith Sweat. Um, and it was just a phenomenal cultural period and concentration of black business and black ownership. What struck me, though, um, was in my dad's place, although we were in a very integrated neighborhood. I mean, the Upper West Side, you know, around 95th Street where we were was was, you know, as 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 integrated a neighborhood as there is in Manhattan. Our clientele was almost 100 percent black. We would have white folks that would come in and stand at the top of the stairs and take a look at the room and turn around and walk out, either feeling intimidated or that it wasn't for them or that they wouldn't be welcome or whatever the case may be. So um, I feel that I got to to taste and experience a little bit of the the tail end of segregation, mm -hmm. social segregation. Right. While, you know, there was there was the relaxing of the, the, the laws that had, you know, kept us separated that we right. fought to undo during the civil rights moment. There was still this social segregation. So I got to experience some of that and uh, it just really informed me. And, and uh, I think it, it just gave me a, a base of knowledge that uh, had I not been there to see it myself, I think um, I would have I would have. Um, wish that I had been. Interesting. Now, um, and in terms of kind of how that shaped your own approach to, you know, to your successful career, uh, founding and running restaurants and clubs such as Georgia, Post and Beam, Roxbury, among others. Mm -hmm. um, I, I guess following up on that, you know, how did, how did that early experience, you know, influence you? Uh, and then more broadly, can you talk a little bit about you know what what your life was like in the, in that it's a tough business as you as you pointed out yeah so i've been told <laughs> yeah you know it's it's interesting don um you know i my my mom um both of my parents are deceased my mom was italian my dad was african american they got married in the 50s when interracial marriage was not legal in a lot of places and um you know, I, I became very aware of race. Um, you know, my mom's family disowned her when she married my dad. So I never really knew her side of the family. And so as a result of that, most of my friends being black when I was young, if not all of them, and only knowing my dad's side of the family, whom of which were black, um, I only ever thought of myself as a black man. And, um, have seen, you know, just kind of experienced my life with the knowledge that, of course, one side of my, you know, my ancestry is Italian. Um, but the a side that I identify most strongly with is is the is black. And that's not considering what, you know, the the you know, what one sixteenth drop of blood, you know, and all of that. You know, it's it's who you are to yourself, right. how you define yourself. 
And so in to, to answer your question or try to to answer your question, as I moved through my career, the first place that I opened after my dad's was a place called Memphis, which is a was was 20 blocks south of the cellar in Manhattan and uh, on 75th Street. And my concern at the time was, would that section of Columbus Avenue, um, which, you know, around the corner, there were famous buildings on Central Park West of Dakota where John Lennon lived. And, um, you know, I, I knew that our clientele, I was the only black partner in the group. I worried about whether or not the clientele would would mix, how that would work. You know, our place at the cellar, we had Supreme Court judges and street hustlers. I mean, it was that wide and, and everybody could groove in the same room. But would that clientele, how would that clientele work on 75th Street? And long story short, it worked great. Um, but it was one of the first rooms that had that level of integration, you know, in a contemporary space. Memphis was a beautiful room we built out. It was New Orleans style food. And we literally had, um, you know, one of the more integrated rooms at a time that that had not really, you know, black folks certainly had started to venture out. I'm not suggesting that no one went south of 95th Street. Certainly they did. But um, I was one of the early operators that had a clientele like the seller that followed me um, into business. So and that, uh, you know, going forward, I mean, that I saw the same thing at Roxbury. I would. Roxbury was a nightclub that I opened in uh, 1989 when I moved to Los Angeles. And um, it was in the, the velvet rope era where, you you know, you put the velvet rope outside and a, <laughs> and a very pretentious doorman. And, you you know, you select hopefully from a crowd of people that are dying to get into your place. And I would go outside and I would handpick. Um, I was, again, the, you know, the, the one of the main operating partners and and. Um, my other partners, it was kind of a test of uh, United Nations and, and world peace. But one of the there were four of us that were the main partners. And it was myself, an Englishman and two Lebanese brothers. And so uh, we all had different views of the world. But I would go off to go outside at night and see too many African-American men not being admitted in. And so I would just go out, take the rope off the hook and say, you, 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 you come in. And funny enough, it being Los Angeles, I met John Singleton that way. I met Lawrence Fishburne that way. Um, but again, you know, my, it was important for me to make sure that the people that I felt had not had, um, you know, who could be left on the other side of the rope, to use a metaphor, um, would be, you know, welcomed in and welcomed in, you know, graciously and, and celebrated once inside. That's a great story. Um, that that leads me to another question, sort of about your path, which is the move from New York to Los Angeles. What mm -hmm. what was behind that? Uh, obviously, you stayed there for a long time, so it worked out well. Mm -hmm. uh, but how how did that? How did you end up choosing to go to Los, Los Angeles? Well, they say, and and looking at your resume, I would think, or your your bio, I, I you might beg to differ because it seems like you've made one upward move after another and, and had a, a very, uh, had an illustrious career. Um, the restaurant business is a little sl more slippery, you know? So I had, um, after opening Memphis and, um, you know, just a quick story, we ran out of money during construction there and we had to bring in 
uh, additional money and it caused us to ultimately lose financial control of the restaurant, which was very frustrating for myself and the original partners. And after a couple of years, we opened two other restaurants with the same group. I just got a little frustrated and I had been approached by um, two friends of mine who were in the entertainment business, Nick Ashford and Valerie Simpson, very famous husband and wife singing group. In fact, I have um, I just interviewed Val on my podcast. Uh, Nick passed away several years ago, but Ashford and Simpson wrote uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough and Reach Out and Touch. Very, very prominent uh, entertainers, songwriters. They had opened a place downtown Manhattan called 2020 and it wasn't working out. It was a restaurant, a uh, large restaurant, and it just wasn't working out. They asked me if I would come and help them, and I did. And I, my idea was to convert it into a cabaret and, and bringing, uh, using their entertainment uh, relationships, bring in um, whoever we could, you know, whoever their friends were, basically. And so we brought in Nina Simone, Roberta Flack, Ohio Players, and we had a good run. But it only lasted for a year. The, the bad business that had been done prior to that just kind of overwhelmed us. So I found we ended up closing, which was incredibly painful. I hadn't experienced that. And um, I ended up back at my dad's place um, where I had started. And it was 1987, 88. And um, I felt like a failure. I felt like I had gone out on my own. I had, you know, had had, you know, some success out of the out of the gate because Memphis had worked. We opened a place called Coastal and another place, 107 West. Those places had worked. And although I didn't have any financial control, I was still part of a success, successful story. 2020 comes at last year. It shuts down and I'm back there. And I just remember uh, one night pulling the gate. We had one of those gates that you pull down, you know, at night when you close up to keep anyone from breaking the window. You know, a lot of New York yeah. storefronts have those. And it was a might have been in February. And I remember, you know, as I bent down and and the cold wind off of the Hudson River you know, ran up my backside. And I was like, is, is this what I'm going to be doing until I'm 70? You know, I, yeah. I just like had one of those moments down. And I said, no, right. it, it can't be. And I had met Norm Nixon. We had played against him, actually. Um, when I was at UMass, he was at Duquesne. And then we got reacquainted when he was uh, in New York with his wife, Debbie Allen. She was doing Sweet Charity on Broadway. And he said, look, man, if you ever think about coming to California, I would love to do something with you. At the same time, I took my dad on vacation. We went to uh, a place called the Via Vera in Acapulco, Mexico, because they had tennis, uh, clay tennis courts and we were playing tennis. And I met the two Lebanese gentlemen that I mentioned, Ely and Dimitri Samaha there. And uh, I had met a gentleman named Chris Breed in New York who was dating the uh, MTV DJ, Julie Brown. And we all kind of came together over the same idea. I went out to L.A., started looking around and found a space that became Roxbury and then just made Los Angeles a home. My son grew up there, although he was born here. He was born in New York, uh, grew up out there. And L.A. is a very easy place to adjust to as a young person. I, I think it's a little less kind for older folks, but as a person in their 20s and 30s, certainly in the uh, 80s and 90s, it was it was an exciting environment to be part of. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> I'd like to ask a little bit about sort of food and, and recipes and your kind of uh, what, what your interests and influences have been. Um, you've done a fair amount of traveling, and I'm just wondering when you when you think about real standout food experiences uh, that you've had, what are what are some of those? Wow, um, 
<laughs> I know yeah. that's a it's a loaded question. No, it, it's it's fine, and I, I can get hungry as I as I talk about this. Um, you know, as I said, you know, my mom being Italian, I grew up with like home cooked Italian food. My mom's lasagna was just ridiculous, and so you know, I have a a palate for sauce um, that that takes me to hers, and on the other side, I have a palate for things like fried chicken and Southern staples, because we would spend summers at my grandmom's um, and my dad's family was from Georgia. So the fried chicken and the collard greens and the sweet potato pie, you know, those were all like old family Georgia recipes that have followed me, um, you know, along the way. So when I think about food experiences, I always start there. But, uh, you know, we started to visit, um, as I mentioned, uh, and had a home on Martha's Vineyard for, for a long time. Don and I got my my first um, exposure to New England cuisine, which is one of my favorites. So fried clams and and lobster rolls and you know, although people now wrinkle their nose when I say, but I, I love bluefish. You know, it's kind of oily. It's not one. Oh of yeah, them. yeah. You know it. I love bluefish. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I tell you though, if you mention bluefish around New England fishermen, they're like, eh, they look at you like you don't yeah. really know what you're talking about. But I, I happen to love it. Um, and then being in Los Angeles, I have some friends that are foodies and, um, some of them, uh, don't mind spending a lot of money at restaurants. I'm always a little conscious of, of how much, you know, I spend. My wife reminds me of how much I spend, but uh, sushi became like a, an incredible experience for me. I'd had no experience with sushi prior, but, uh, to have gone to Matsuhisa in, um, in LA, the original restaurant that Nobu opened, um, and and dine there throughout the years with a couple of really good friends who know sushi and know rest, uh, uh, nobu. Um, that that has been a, a phenomenal experience. So, um, but you know, I'm a, I'm a simple guy, man. I I love like a great burger. Um, yeah. You know, one of my favorite places in LA that has now uh, closed was a place called Hal's, and Hal's just had a great turkey burger and a great bar, and the bartenders made a good martini and. You know, that for me defines also what, you know, a, a great restaurant. It's not necessarily always, you know, a 10 course meal that, uh, you know, you can brag about. It's, it's how you feel about being in a, in a particular room and the experience that you have there that to me is, you know, often just as memorable, if not more. Absolutely. And, you know, with your interesting kind of heritage, I imagine you've passed down some of your recipes and and your taste your loves of those special foods to your to your son is that true and, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. Is, does he share a lot of that he he, he sure does um yeah. he's a musician uh he goes by the name bryce vine that is his, his uh stage name but yeah he signed uh to to warner brothers a few years ago and has had you know pretty pretty nice run up until last year when when all touring was ceased but yeah, uh, now whenever he goes to a city, I get the uh, in, you know, I get the uh, on my phone the picture of you know the restaurant that they're at and the food that they're about to eat, and uh, it's how now I actually find find out about the places that I need to go. My son <laughs> informs me, but yeah, no doubt I I have a, a a little video that I'm so glad that I um thought to do on this day, but with him and my mom in the kitchen and her showing him. Uh, how she makes her red sauce. And uh, it's not a very long video, but it's long enough so that the ingredients and the, the cooking time and it's her 
showing him and him looking intently at her and he still knows how to make that sauce but i i have that video so absolutely he's, he shares my love of food do you yourself um like to cook or is or is that something that you've sort of done enough of in in your professional work <clears throat> well um i you know i tended to stay out of the kitchen although i've looked over a lot of shoulders and learned quite a few things from the various chefs that uh, that um have worked in restaurants that i've had um, cooking for me is not something that I, you know, I can make you a few things that you might like. Um, I do enjoy the, I enjoy listening to jazz, um, pouring a little glass of wine. That time of day happens to be one of my favorite times of day, uh, the late afternoon, early evening. Um, I enjoy the experience of that environment. The, the the result of the dish and whatever it is, and my wife and I are now a little more focused on we're eating healthy and she made a great vegan cauliflower, cauliflower vegan pasta last night. My wife is an amazing cook. So I, I, I tend to leave like the amazing stuff for her to do, but I'll make, you know, some grits in the morning. And, and then, as I said, in the late afternoon, you know, I, I'll definitely uh, do a few things for her as well. And, and I just enjoy the process of it the whole experience. Understood. I'm kind of like you, except mm -hmm. I enjoy the good cooking and I have a spouse who's very good at it. And uh, she, uh, she keeps me, you know, keeps me well fed. And, and I enjoy that late afternoon, early evening moment as well. So um, I really did enjoy the piece that you wrote in, in the Oxford American about entitled peasant food. Um, and I'm, I wonder if you could reflect a little bit on the difficulties uh, that you face managing your restaurants, you know, which were uh, by design made up of people from very different backgrounds serving a diverse clientele. Mm -hmm. How did you manage those times when there was unrest and social injustice? Wow. Uh, I mean, and, you know, and I'm sure you have some interesting mm -hmm. perspectives on that. Yeah, um, I do. And first, you know, I, I want to say, you know, I was just listening to uh, I have Ta-Nehisi Coates on uh, my podcast tomorrow. I'm, I'm going to have a conversation with him. And he was speaking with a, um, a law professor at NYU. And the, the question of uh, that, that bad saying, uh, those who don't do teach um, yeah. was he took such issue with that, Don, and I, and I have to say that I could not have agreed with him more. And I just wanted to take a moment to commend you for a life spent in education and the, the care and the importance of the time that you give to these kids and to those kids. We were all once one of those kids, and we know how important uh, time and attention is from those that know and teaching is a noble profession and it's a valuable profession and i think it's an undervalued profession but i just wanted to say that and um you know how much that i appreciate what you do so um thank, thank you. you for that um to answer your question you know it's it's the article for me came out of an experience that i had um, and, you know, it's this past year we've seen more attention paid. Um, you know, I came from a time, Dom, when uh, the mainstream media did not recognize uh, black owned restaurants. And I was conscious of that back in the 70s and the 80s um, and made more so through the years. 
And when we opened Georgia, Georgia was a restaurant that I opened after Roxbury uh, in Los Angeles. And we opened on the heels of the Rodney King, um, you know, up, uprising and, and ultimate um, civil disturbance. And a lot of people have this impression, I did certainly, that, you know, California, L.A. is this very liberal, anything goes kind of place. But I was very surprised, actually, at how segregated uh, L.A. was. I, you know, walked through the halls of the talent agencies and the film companies. I spent some time in the film business and the music business. And, you know, I just could not. Uh, I was shocked, actually, at, at how little representation there was of people of color. And I felt, you know, we didn't get a great review for Roxbury uh, when we opened. I felt that the reviewer, it was just not intended for this reviewer. She did not, you know, she wasn't a person who we had opened the place for necessarily. Um, and she wrote a review from a perspective of a person who really wasn't ready for a three-story nightclub with live blues on the first floor. When it came time to um, to I, I wanted to get back into the restaurant business. And when in the inspiration from Georgia came about, um, I really wanted to focus on having a room again that felt like a black room, white room, brown room. You know, it just would have the representation of the rainbow, if you will, if you will, gay, straight, male, female. Um, and we and I and it was a concerted effort from the investor group that we assembled to the way that I staffed the restaurant to how I spoke about the restaurant to the, you know to whomever was interested in hearing about it. And then when we got reviewed, uh, Ruth Reichel, who I um, end up quoting, and she and I developed a great report twenty five years after the fact. I carried around the hurt from the bad review she she wrote about Georgia for a long time. Um, I felt that she had missed the context that surrounded what it took for us to get that place off the ground and what the intent was. And restaurants, you know, without without uh, making too, you know, trying to make too big a statement about it. But, you know, as we've missed restaurants this past year, I think we all recognize how much we appreciate the ability to meet our friends out socially and rub elbows and just that favorite place that you have where you go and have the drink and the guy remembers what you drank the last time and, and whatever restaurants and bars mean to you, we've had a chance to miss them. And um, I felt that Ruth had missed an opportunity to understand Georgia from the context of what it took to get that place off the ground and what the intention was behind it. So long story short, she and I reconnected. I wrote her a letter. Um, this That actually happened prior to my getting the Oxford assignment. And uh, she wrote back to me and, and uh, very gracefully acknowledged what I was saying. And I think, you know, I, I wasn't attacking her. Certainly it was 25 years later. So, you know, I wasn't going to attack her. She's a very accomplished writer. And in fact, I, I love her work. I've read her books. Um, and we had a great rapport and it allowed me an opportunity. And, and, you know, this goes to something else that I learned in writing this, this article for Oxford. I have to give Oxford Americans some credit. Their editors were phenomenal. A guy named Jay Jennings, who was the editor uh, that I worked with there, he was the one who suggested that I circle back to Ruth, that I circle back to Jeanette Holly, the chef who had called uh, Southern Food Peasant Food. And working with someone, Don, who makes you better is, you know, what an opportunity. So that's that's really what I took away from that experience is experience was just 
the value of editors and and the, a, a greater appreciation for the work that they do. But it was the opportunity to tell that story uh, for me just was like a burden, man, lifting off my chest. It was a restaurant I loved, I cared so much about, and it took a lot to get off the ground. And I felt it was misunderstood by the reviewer, not by the public. We got you know accolades and had great support. I'm so glad you raised that story because it was one of the the highlights uh, I thought of that uh, of that piece. Um, and you're you know you're reconnecting with Ruth Ruth Reichel, you know, who ran Gourmet and is kind of an icon mm-hmm. and. And I'm just going to read the the first, you quoted this, but she wrote back to you on this letter. I'm stunned by the generosity of your letter. Why has it taken me so long to truly understand that racism is a white people problem? Uh, I, I thought that was really, and then, you know, your response to that and the way that, you know, you've, um, you know, continued the conversation with her, I think does speak to your generosity and to the kind of wisdom that you develop and share with people about, you know, what it meant to have these restaurants at that time and, and the evolution of that. Um, anyway, I thought that was very, very moving. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about the research you did in this in this piece, uh, notably about the contributions of, you know, sort of black cuisine, some of which goes back to before the founding of this country. Right. Um, could you talk a little bit about that and, and you know, how you did that? And, sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, it, it for me, Don, having been a career restaurateur and having felt um, the undertelling of our story, you know, when I um, when my dad passed away in 2007, um, I remember it was around the, the close to the time that um, Elaine that owned the very famous Elaine's on the east side uh, had passed away. And Elaine got a full page story in the New York Times, an obituary, which she certainly deserved. And I contacted the New York Times and because the mainstream media had not covered black owned places uh, during the the time that my dad or close to 20 years that he had his place, there was not the, the type of documentation that the New York Times needed in order to publish an obituary for him. And he had been written up plenty in Jet Magazine, you know, the Johnson publication and the Amsterdam News, the Harlem newspaper, but not main, they, those were not considered mainstream by the New York Times at the time. And of course, I'm dealing with the grief of my dad and I passing and I, you know, couldn't spend but so much time trying to get his obit passed. So uh, published. So to, to your question, I've always been hypersensitive to, um, the story of African-American contribution to the food scene in America and its origin um, as both a restaurateur and from from a chef's perspective, although I'm not a chef, um, how the cuisine, what the story of the cuisine, what were the items that made it over from Africa and what, what showed up in the South that was that, that made that journey and how did that find its way into the diet of, of slaves early on and how has that progressed through the centuries and years to become whatever we look at food um, of the South and, and um, food that was indigenous to African-Americans and, and slaves going back to, to, the, to slave days. And to me, 
the the lack of diversity in food media specifically i felt the brunt of that as an operator i felt that whenever they wrote about me and i'm you know i'm sorry to so self-relate to this to this topic but um i only was i think i mentioned this in fact in the oxford american piece that i was only referred to as a restaurateur recently and it was like some badge of honor that the that the food media was just not going to bestow on me. It was like this elitist club that mm -hmm. uh, and whenever they would write about me, they would only write about me from L.A. forward. And I'm like, do your research. You know, I was in the restaurant business for 15 years before I moved to New York, uh, before I moved to L.A. But it, there was a laziness to the journalism, which just bugged me, you know, on the face of it. But then below that, there was a disinterest in the story if it didn't involve some, you know, a white person. And I took offense to that. And it would it, I, for years, I just lamented at the at the lack of an absence of black food journalists. And so, again, you know, this past year we saw Don Davis take over at Bon Appetit which uh, hopefully are going to produce some some good results. We saw the James Beard. And here's a, a quick side. You know, I've been talking to the, uh, the, the director of diversity at the James Beard Foundation. I reached out to several years ago and started pitching myself as someone, an African-American. I've had restaurants in every decade since the 70s on both coasts. And there aren't very many in my specific category, if there are any others that have been around as long as me. And I was trying to impress upon him, put me on your board. If you want diversity, I can bring you that. And I know how to do it and how to talk about it. We had conversations done for a couple of years. Nothing happened. Well, this past year, of course, James Beard was one of the ones that called off their ceremony in part because of COVID, but also because of the lack of diversity of nominees. And so I think that what's important is, you know, we just we just need a, a, a wide range of perspective that represents our our culture as a whole everybody's mm -hmm. interested in everybody else's story we don't want to hear the same story by the same group of people over and over and over again i want i want to find out about things i don't know about and i think that's what the opportunity is here and hopefully as as the um the food media uh, extends itself now to members of others other communities we're going to start to find out more about uh, the stories we haven't heard a lot about Absolutely. Um, you've recently started producing a podcast, uh, <laughs> Corner Table Talk. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit about what inspired it and, and some of the guests that you've had so far and upcoming guests? You also sure. seem to have quite a Rolodex of uh, people, <laughs> stars and famous people, right? Well, Don, when you, you spend your whole life pulling chairs out for people, you, you, you meet a few people along the way. So, yeah, that's been one of the uh, one of the things that I really have enjoyed the most about being in the restaurant business is, you know, just and it's not it's not necessarily it's been great to meet a few bold faced names along the way. But, uh, you know, I think of guys like a, a friend of mine, Carlos, who worked as a busser for me at Post and B, my last place. I got to know pretty well. He would leave his his home uh, with his his wife and two young kids about an hour outside of L.A. and drive to his first job in Brentwood to be there for breakfast service at six thirty. 
work from 6.30 until 3 o'clock when lunch was over, take the 40-minute drive from Brentwood to South LA and start his shift with me uh, for, the, for the evening. And that was what he did five days a week. And, you know, so it's guys like people like that that just stay with you and, and, you know, teach you to just be grateful for what you have and cherish everybody. Every, every station is important. You try running a restaurant without a dishwasher and you'll learn that it's just as important as your chef, you know, in terms of the job getting done. Um, so, yeah. So what, well, I'm sorry, the question you asked me was, I just was asking the about podcast, your, the right, podcast you. and what yep. inspired it. And yeah. So, um, yeah, I got approached by a, a gentleman who was starting a podcast network and someone had rec- he was interested in, in uh, doing something in the, in the hospitality space as one of the as one of the um, podcasts. And someone that, that knew me and knew him had worked with him previously, uh, recommended that he speak with me. And uh, we ended up talking about it. My wife had you know, we were we were taking some time off and I was trying to think about what I wanted to do next. And, you know, with with the hit that restaurants took this past year and having done that my whole life, I wasn't anxious to jump right back in the restaurant business. So this just the podcast gave me an interesting opportunity to, you know, be restaurant adjacent, if you will. And although the podcast that, you know, I extended, uh, we say it's food plus drink plus culture. And uh, some segments are just strictly culture. You know, as I mentioned, I have a uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates coming up tomorrow. Um, very much looking forward to the conversation with him. We'll touch on restaurants. I actually met him uh, at Post and Bean, but um, I've had people like uh, Valerie Simpson, who I previously mentioned, Isaiah Thomas. Um, I've had chefs, Marcus Samuelson, um, various people, uh, uh, actors, Jackie Jackson of the famous Jackson 5 family. Uh, Norm Nixon, as I mentioned, my one of my original business partners and the and the conversations are just wide ranging. And, you know, I just I've really enjoyed Don the the research part of it, um, you know, having to be prepared a little bit as you have, you know, today, I tell by your questions that you've taken some time to, you know, someone like me to, to come on and, and talk to you. I really appreciate that. But I, I think that people um, when you do take the time to find out a little bit about them, uh, when you're speaking with them, they can tell. And I think that that just helps the conversation. And so that's it's just been really enjoyable for me, just getting to know people a little bit better and, and finding and, and learning some things along the way. That's great. Um, you, you mentioned uh, you've mentioned in a couple of ways that you've taken a pause. Are you thinking about any other projects or passions either in the business that you know so well or something else. And, and by the way, you are a very good researcher and writer, but <laughs> I, don't, I don't know whether that's something you'd pursue uh, more in a more full-time way. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I, I really enjoy writing. I do. It's work though. I mean, I know. you know, yeah. right. It's, <laughs> I mean, you, when you finally feel like you've, got to where you needed to get to. It's a, it's a process and, you know, it's painful, but there's definitely some, some pleasure in it as well. Yeah. I am my wife, who is my business partner, Linda. um, We are in the midst of um, some negotiations with, uh, with a a company that we have some real interest in. And if, and if we are able to do a deal with them, it'll, it'll be a really nice opportunity to, uh, to extend um, my hospitality relationships, 
but uh, through a different, uh, a, a different, in a different form, uh, hopefully with a bigger reach and bigger opportunity. So, um, yeah, we're, we're pursuing that. Um, I've got a project coming up with uh, Marcus Samuelson, the, the very well-known chef. Uh, he and I both idolized a, um, a restaurant and an operator out in New York, a restaurant called Jezebel and the woman that owned it, Alberta Wright. Uh, she was like a second mom to me and both Marcus and I have been greatly influenced by her. So we're working on a project together uh, that's going to highlight uh, her life and what her restaurant meant to so many folks like us. Um, and, and just kind of, you know, this year has been, it's been something I, I'm sure for you in education, you know, kids come back. I think you're back in school now. Um, but you had to have had a lot of time to step back and say, you know, what is this life about? You know, what are we, right. what are we doing to the planet? What are we doing right. to us? You know, all of those kinds of questions. So I, I feel like the big giant pause button we could have done without certainly the death and sickness, but it does feel like uh, we needed to kind of stop in our tracks for a minute and think about what we're doing, you know, on this planet. Totally, uh, totally agree. And by the way, you mentioned uh, Marcus Samuelson, uh, one of my wife's and my favorite restaurants over the last couple of years, though we haven't, of course, been there, is his restaurant or I think he's, I mean, he founded it in Newark. Uh, right, Marcus, right. And, and mm -hmm. that's a great restaurant. And, and uh, I think it's a rooftop place there, if I'm not mistaken, or, has a, or it has a rooftop. Maybe I, I was just in a, in a street level one. Okay. Really interesting food and mm -hmm. kind of, you know, different, different, uh, obviously different traditions represented. Mm -hmm. um, well, listen, I, I, again, I, it's been fascinating to, to read what you've written and to hear you talk a little bit about it. And uh, I'm really grateful to have had this opportunity. I also want to suggest that if you, you know, once we're open again, um, I hope in the fall and, you know, we were, we have been in session, but, you know, sometime things will get better. And, and if you're ever in the area, I'd love to show you around the school and uh, maybe go out to a restaurant. Oh, wow. That would be a treat. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah. make a point of that. Yeah. When you're back in, when you're back uh, in the area. So um, thank you very much. Uh, and, you know, best of luck to you on whatever you end up doing next. Yeah. I look forward to hearing about it. Thanks so much, Don, for the opportunity to talk to you today and congratulations to you and much continued success and for all the good work that you're doing. Thank you for listening to NA Voices. If you have a story that you'd like to share, please email us at alumni at newarka.edu.